Welcome one and all to another episode of Left Turn Canada. Andy Burkowski, Christo Avalice here. We have been gone for a little while, but we're coming back strong. We're going to be discussing today a lot of stuff, but mainly what is going on with the Green Party of Canada. And I thought, you know, Christo and I thought it'd be a great idea to bring in someone that may have a unique perspective on the goings on in the party that is green, a, a much more unique than even you and I, Christo. So please welcome Christo. Can you uh, introduce that name as we were talking about before we recorded? Just make sure so I don't yeah. butcher it with my, well, my we have, damn uh, Scottish tongue. Yeah, uh, Dimitri Lascaris, <laughs> otherwise known as uh, Jimmy Lascaris <laughs> from Montreal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that that's what they called me when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what like, my dad's name was Dimitri, and they called him Jimmy the Greek, right? From the, yes, right, yes. Right, yeah. I got a lot of that. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, thank you. Here, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so thank much. You um, so yeah, just for those that are not familiar, I was clear teeing it up. I think if they're listening, they probably know who you are. But what is your connection to uh, the Green Party and just politics here in, in Canada? Why should people be interested in what you got to say, so to speak? Well, uh, I leave it to them to decide what <laughs> certainly, certainly. Interest. But uh, I do have extensive uh, connections to the Green Party. It was the first political party I ever joined, uh, and I joined it back in 2007. Um, and at that time, I wasn't really dialed into electoral politics at all. I was just sort of busy doing my class actions practice, uh, raising my kids. Uh, and a, a few things happened around that time that um, really uh, sort of enlivened me uh, politically. Uh, one of them was a good friend of mine who le leaned at that point more to the left than I do. I think today I lean more to the left than he does. <laughs> but he recommended I read Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. Mm. I'd never even heard of this book before. I didn't even, amazingly, I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't even know who Noam Chomsky was. And I read the book and uh, once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down and uh, within a matter of days, I consumed the entire book. And I, I, I think the best way to describe how I felt is I was trembling in anger <laughs> because I felt that I had been, I suddenly realized I'd been lied to my entire life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the second thing that happened was the financial crisis. And I kind of had a front row view on that because I was a securities class actions lawyer representing uh, defrauded investors. And, Ooh. and uh, I was, you know, I, I brought, uh, my colleagues and I uh, at the firm I was working with at the time brought the first subprime mortgage class action in North America. It didn't actually happen. Uh, it's a little known fact. It didn't actually start the litigation wave in the United States. It started in Canada mm -hmm. uh, with a company that was based in the U.S. but had listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And that was really a, quite an eye opener for me as I watched how these you know bankers who had engaged in just stunning uh, levels of fraud, fraudulent activity were bailed out one after the other by the government and no one was held accountable. And the third thing that happened, all, and this happened, as I said, all at once was I read the fourth report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that was the first time that uh, the IPCC said that the evidence uh, that uh, human-caused uh, greenhouse gas emissions were cooking the planet were, was unequivocal. That was a word that had a big impact on me. Uh, it, I took that to mean that we now have no real doubt that mm -hmm. we are destroying the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and having two children at the time, that was alarming to me. And so I went through this kind of political transformation and I looked across the political landscape in Canada and I said, you know, what party would best address just based on what I know about these parties, 
my profound concerns. Uh, and uh, I decided it was the Green Party. So I became involved in 2007. Uh, I became the CEO of the London West uh, Electoral District Association. I more or less managed the campaign uh, for our candidate in London West, uh, who had the highest uh, result in that in in that riding for a Green Party candidate ever. Um, and she was a great candidate. Uh, and and then I became uh, I became a candidate myself in London West in 2015. Uh, shortly after that, I was put in the Green Party of Canada shadow cabinet as the justice critic. Uh, I was booted out six months later for, <laughs> because I supported BDS, essentially. We we'll yeah, get yeah. into that later. Yeah. Um, and then I ran to be, uh, I should say that I also became a member of the executive in the shadow cabinet of the Green Party of Quebec uh, in 2019. Uh, again, as justice critic. And then in 2020, I ran to be the lead Green Party of Canada leader. Uh, and I finished uh, second behind Anne Marie Paul um, uh, in September of that year. Um, and since then, I have, you know, I've not had an official role in the Green Party of Canada. I declined to participate uh, in this year's uh, leadership contest. Again, if you want to get into that, I'd be happy to do that. Um, but I've more or less been a commentator sitting on the sidelines, uh, you know, offering my views about whether this party has a future and if so what does that future look like mm -hmm. now yeah. you've the the term eco-socialist has been thrown around a lot when describing you know, it's a term we love here and we, we want to hear you know more politicians actively taking that on is that you know still a, a moniker in which you you like to get behind absolutely yeah uh, i think it best defines who i am you know i think eco-socialism reduced to its simplest formulation is a an acute understanding that, you know, the salvation of our planet upon which the well-being of all humanity depends is intimately intertwined with, um, you know, the economic system that we mm -hmm. adopt. And that economic system, in order for it to ultimately preserve the planet and enhance the health and well-being of humanity, uh, must uh, be socialist. Mm -hmm. There is no uh, alternative. I mean, if, you know, I think it's become absolutely crystal clear that capitalism is destroying the planet. And you may not agree that socialism is the right alternative, but we should all be able to agree that capitalism is going to bring an end to the conditions that are necessary for healthy, organized life on this planet. Yeah, well, hundred percent. And I mean the 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 challenge, and I think this is a challenge across the political spectrum, at least across the political parties, is a failure to recognize that, but then also to kind of buy into like techno capitalist solutions, right? Which which can be helpful. And can be part, you know, you know, certain technologies, but, you know, a fundamental realization that we have to organize the economy in a different fashion. It can't just be, you know, we get new carbon capture technology and we get some EVs and, you know, and things like that. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's something that both the NDP and the Greens and especially, the, you know, the liberals and conservatives, I think that's a trap they fall in. Right. It's it's uh, individual individual solutions to what is a collective problem right yeah, yeah. I, although i wouldn't say that they fall into it i think that they are trying to cause us to fall into that trap well, well i mean yeah that <laughs> yeah. That, that, they, that may be fair yes yeah they're they're ultimately you know the people who run the 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 major political parties in this country this is absolutely true of the liberals and the conservatives they're ideologically committed to the capitalist system and they profit from it you know uh enormously and so 
um, they they just they, they, their interests in this system are so vested and deep um, that we'll never persuade them to support uh, a socialist transformation. And ultimately, the only way to get there is to remove them from power by any and all means necessary to be perfectly fucking blunt about it, yeah. uh, because that's where we we are now at the precipice of, you know, a catastrophic uh, decline in the conditions necessary for healthy, organized, civilized life on this planet. Um, and so we have to adopt any and all measures necessary to remove these people from power because they're driving us over that cliff. Well, I'm thinking about what you just said there about the necessity for this change. And as someone that has background in the Green Party, you know, at this point in time, how realistic do you think it is that the Green Party of Canada could be the driver to necessitate that fundamental change that you're speaking of, what we need of making sure these other party leaders and the leadership within are not in control. You know, we, we've seen what's happened, Elizabeth May back in the hot seat running the, you know, the family again, so to speak. How effective would this part, is this party, in your opinion, at actually making this change happen? You know, I, I'm going to speak bluntly to you. I mean, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat uh, the situation that the Green Party confronts. The Green Party is a train wreck right now. Um, and that is largely a, a consequence of Elizabeth May's mismanagement and poor leadership of this party, but by no means does the responsibility lie exclusively with her. Um, you know, there are a lot of people, ultimately this party in its roots was radically eco-socialist. Mm -hmm. And I go back all the days uh, to the days of... Um, uh, you know, the leader back in 2020, uh, Joan Rousseau, who actually endorsed me for uh, uh, the leadership when I was running in, uh, I'm sorry, she she was the leader in 2000, I should say. She endorsed me when I ran to be the leader in 2020. And she she came from the roots of the Green Party movement. The Green Party movement was anti-war, anti-NATO, anti-nuclear, and, and, you know, radically committed to uh, a profound transformation of our economic system. And like so many political parties, it was co-opted. Mm -hmm. It was co-opted by capitalists masquerading as environmentalists. Uh, and that trend uh, in the development of the Green Party has continued right up until the current time. Um, and so Elizabeth May was part of that trend. Elizabeth May is is very skillful at you know straddling the front the the fence between progressivism and capitalism. She's done that in many ways, but at the end of the day. Um, that's not what we need, and that's not going to inspire the electorate. That is not uh, the future of the Green Party. Uh, so I think that ultimately, if this party is going to be that agent for radical change, the kind of transformation we desperately need, we have to become overtly, expressly, and unapologetically committed to eco-socialism. And we haven't had a leader like that uh, in, in the Green Party, or frankly, in, in, in Canada's parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, in my lifetime, I can't think of a single person who actually uh, was, in my opinion, truly committed to an eco-socialist transformation for any political party in my lifetime. Certainly, uh, certainly not at the leaders, certainly not to to lead a party. Right. And a yeah. lot of the, the socialist leaders we have had kind of predate the the, you know, the awareness of 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 the environment to the extent we have now. Right. You know. Yeah, that's I, yeah. I I don't think I could disagree. 
frankly. Yeah, and Krista, I, I want to be clear. I say this all the time. I'm, I, I, I need to draw a distinction between the base of the political parties in Canada. Yeah. I think all of the, all of the political parties, to some degree or another, their base is to the left of the leadership. Oh, 100 percent. You know, and that's a feature that that's that's a that's a, a fundamental feature of the system. The system was designed yeah. so that people who are elevated to leadership roles of these political parties are always to the right of the base. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's true of the NDP. It's true of the liberals. It's even true of the conservatives, I think. Well, at least on some we've talked about it. But, you know, just one example is a wealth tax, right, which is mm. supported by the NDP and I believe the Greens as well. And I think the Bloc. But. Um, the eighty percent of Canadians support it, including super majorities of conservatives and liberal voters. So it's one of those issues where if you go to the people and say, "What do you think?" Whether you're rich or you're poor, uh, whether you live in any province, whether you're young or you're old, or whether you're a liberal and conservative NDP Green, they all support a wealth tax, at least a modest one, on the very wealthiest people. And yet, if you have a vote in Parliament, eighty-five percent of the seats are going to vote against it. And I think you're right that on climate, it's much the same thing, where if you went to the people, you would find significant support, e even among conservatives, maybe not a majority, but at least a plurality of conservatives. A hundred percent. I think yeah. the number was 64. Uh, the last yeah. poll I saw showed that 65 percent approximately of conservative party supporters. Yeah. OK, wow. Favored yeah. a wealth tax. Yeah, yeah, wealth. Yes. Yeah. And I think when I believe the NDP brought forward a motion and I can't think of a single liberal or conservative and the number the figure as i recall for the liberal party supporters was somewhere around 80 percent 80 yeah. nexus of 80 percent i can't think of a single mp from the conservatives the liberals who supported that motion it's no i can't either i can't the, either there might have been sometimes there's one or two liberals but i can't i yeah. can't off the top of my head remember yeah but how what what greater like what more powerful a statement can one possibly imagine where you have a large majority of your party supporters favoring this policy and virtually no one in your caucus is prepared to vote in favor of a non-binding yeah. motion supporting yeah. that policy. It's just shocking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's shocking. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, I do wonder, like just tying into what we're, you were saying previously, you know, what is your firsthand account of what it's like inside the, the green party? Because like you just said, it, it's almost, it's, and this is not individual, to the Green Party, absolutely. But there seems to be this endemic issue that these organizations are perhaps not as democratic, plainly said, as most individuals would would hope them to be or even think they are, you know? Like, what's your take on how the Green Party runs in your assessment? And is there, you know, what could we do or what could be done rather to make some changes so maybe we could have leadership that better reflects what the base and, you know, constituents actually want? Well, my personal experience uh, has been that uh, the party, and I think this is even truer of the other parties, although I can't, you know, uh, comment yeah. on that as, as knowledgeably as I can about the Green Party because I've never been really involved to the same degree in any other political party, but uh, it's highly hierarchical. There's mm -hmm. a really powerful hierarchy. And, you know, the leadership exercises through a ver the leader exercises through a variety of non-transparent tools, uh, a, an, a, an extraordinary degree of power over party policy, over, uh, you know, who uh, who gets to speak for the party, what policies actually get adopted at convention, what policies make it to the floor, who gets to run <laughs> for the party. You know, the leader has a veto on that. 
And it's, again, this is not peculiar to the Green Party, as far as I can tell. But, you know, there's there's no transparency around that. Like they will, a leader will mix candidates, uh, you know, who's for, for reasons that are not ever disclosed, the, mm -hmm. the process whereby these candidates can contest decisions to disqualify them from running is extremely, yeah. uh, you know, flawed from a, a, a procedural justice perspective. Yeah. And so they have a variety of tools at their disposal, which they use basically to impose their will on the party. And I think one of those tools in my, in, in my case, and I mentioned earlier that I was removed from the Green Party of Canada uh, shadow cabinet back in 2016 after six months again the leader there had absolute discretion to do that i personally think shadow cabinet members uh, in all political parties should be elected by the base uh, but as with other parties the leader has complete discretion to appoint and dismiss people from shadow cabinet and i was dismissed after i brought forward a resolution supporting bds and much to my amazement over the leader's objections, uh, we adopted by a substantial margin at the 2016 policy convention in Ottawa, a resolution supporting the BDS, uh, the, the, the tactic of BDS uh, to uh, secure the, the human rights of the Palestinian people. And what did our leader do? Uh, the next morning, after the adoption of that policy by a wide, wide, margin, uh, wide margin, she threatened to resign. Mm -hmm. And this freaked out the federal council of the party uh, many of whom were, you know, acolytes of Elizabeth May, to such a degree that they did something that the party had never done before in its history. They reconvened a general meeting uh, three months later in Calgary, of all places, probably the most inhospitable place for a discussion about Palestinian rights, uh, to essentially reassess this policy. The, the goal was obviously to uh, re to, to persuade the party's members to retract the policy after a fulsome debate on it um, and with the threat of the leader's resignation hanging over their head. Now, uh, you know, as I've said many times, if Elizabeth May had a problem with the BDS resolution, hey, man, I understand. You, you, you've got your own conscience. You've got to act in accordance with your conscience. But if you have a problem with something that's been democratically adopted, you can't abide that policy, resign leave the leave you mm. leave the position that's your obligation at that stage yeah. but to put a gun to the members heads and say you know and at that time she was the only mp we had and say i'm resigning if you don't retract this policy to my mind that's profoundly undemocratic yeah i mean well i mean look we've seen we've seen these things we, we whether it's the the greens and how they disqualified you and then but requalified you after a lot of rabble rousing from 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 the members, and then we saw what happened with the BC NDP as yeah. well, and we've spent a lot of time talking about that travesty. Very similar situation in a lot of ways, I would suggest. Um, you know, somebody who was called an outsider, but was really actually deeply involved with the party and cared deeply about it, uh, had the gall to uh, sign up members and challenge the leadership. Uh, and was was booted because of it. But I mean, I think this question of 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 Palestine is such a is such a critical one. And mm -hmm. I mean, I think that well, maybe you have some some insight on this. It's like there's just there's such an aversion to call it what it is, right? And and, mm -hmm. and this permeates all of the political parties. You've seen some NDP MPs, but no, by no means the the party really as a as a machine. Um, you talk about this but we're not even able to call it what it is we're not able to call it apartheid right and i'm wondering like how do we address this issue if we can't even 
use the proper terminology. Like it's the Amnesty International report, the, the, the current liberal government has spat on it basically by just saying, no, it's not apartheid. And I say, I, I wonder how we even get to, this is one of those issues where we can't even call, like we can call climate change, climate change, can't even call apartheid apartheid. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's not just amnesty, right. It's, uh, you know, God, I could go on for hours about yeah. this. So, uh, 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 an Israeli human rights lawyer whom I know personally I have great respect for. He works for an Israeli human rights organization called Yeshdin. He issued an opinion in 2017, I think it was, that uh, Israel is an apartheid state. Then the Israeli human rights group Betzelem on the following year uh, went even further and said that Israel is practicing apartheid in all of historic Palestine, not only in the occupied territories. Richard Falk and Virginia Tilly, and Richard Falk is a member of the American Jewish community. He was the UN Special Rapporteur for human rights uh, of the Palestinian people, he issued an opinion with uh, Professor Tilly in 2017, stating that is that the evidence that Israel was committing the crime of apartheid was overwhelming. That's the word they used. Then came Human Rights Watch. Then came Amnesty International. Then came Michael Link, uh, University of Western Ontario uh, professor of law, uh, who was the successor to Richard Falk as the UN Special Rapporteur on the human rights of the Palestinian people in the occupied territories. And we could go on and on. You know, there was, you know, uh, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, for example, Uh, you know, John Dugard, the South African human rights lawyer. There's literally a mountain of the highest authority in international law that has adjudged Israel to be an apartheid state and much worse than the form of apartheid uh, that prevailed in uh, the under the Africana regime in South Africa. And yet anybody who utters that word in mainstream political discourse is almost automatically branded an anti-Semite. Uh, you know, and uh, I mean, I think that there's really a, a powerful statement on the level of moral depravity of our political system, where you have this immense body of expert opinion, almost unanimous on the question of whether Israel is committing apartheid and saying that not only are they committing apartheid, but it's blatantly obvious and far more severe than the South African case of apartheid. And yet you can't say that word and be politically viable. It's shocking to me. And it really, it, it, it's, I think, a powerful instance of just how morally depraved our political system has become. Uh, you know, we are no longer uh, in a space where our political representatives are talking, I don't know that we ever were, uh, we certainly are today in a space where our political representatives are talking to us honestly about human rights and international law. They cynically exploit these things, concepts of human rights and international law, in order to pursue a nefarious agenda that is ultimately designed to serve the interests of narrow elites. Mm-hmm. And this, what's being done to the Palestinian people and how the discourse around their rights is being manipulated is just one instance of this. It's a very powerful instance of this. But it's just one instance of this. Another instance is, you know, if you call yourself a socialist, even though polls show there's a lot of sympathy for socialism in our society, you know, you're immediately branded as unelectable. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was I when I was running to be the leader, I was, you know, like a- a- Andrew Coyne referred to me on power and politics as an extremist <laughs> because I called myself a socialist. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, look at polls, man. I mean, but you look at the data, you can't plausibly and rationally characterize a self-professed socialist as being extreme by the standards of the opinions of average Canadians. 
Yeah, especially when so many, you know, actual extreme fascist ideologues are out there taking yeah. up the, you know, nothing that's even remotely the equivalency, but are still given consideration or not nearly as, you know, branded in our society as someone that, you know, yeah. maybe just doesn't want the planet to completely implode in the next 20 years. Like that's yeah. kind of as simple as that, right? I like, mean, that's the whole discourse right now. And whether it's on uh, Israel, Palestine, where anybody sort <laughs> In many cases, no can 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 say some deeply anti-Semitic things, and so long as they 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 support Israel, that there's often this 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 kid glove treatment. Whereas staunch defenders of Palestinian rights, uh, of human rights, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn or 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 or, or people like Ilhan Omar, Rashida Talib, uh, are are branded as anti-Semitic despite there being no evidence of the case. And I think it's just it's one of those moments where. Literal fascists are welcome into polite discourse, at least in certain terms at certain points. But, um, you know, democratic socialists are, are treated as 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 beyond the discourse. And again, this is how they create a situation where a policy with 85 percent support can't get uh, can't get uh, 70 votes in parliament. Sure. Uh, with a like, wealth tax, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like a classic example what you're talking about is, you know, Trump uh, has said many things, which yes. by the standards of the IHRA definition of uh, anti-Semitism, and this is the the definition of anti-Semitism that the Israel lobby is aggressively promoting, he said many things which by that standard are anti-Semitic, but because he did, you know, he basically was prepared to give to Netanyahu's government anything he wanted, including the move, uh, you know, the transfer of the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, amongst other things, you know, people gave him a free, people who support Israel gave him a free pass. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but I want to just go back to one other thing about this whole notion of extremism. I said this when I was running in 2020, I'll say this until I'm blue in the face. If you are a defender of a suicidal status quo, you are the extremist. <laughs> you, the moderates are those who are advocating for the things that must be done to preserve the planet upon whose health we depend. We're the moderates and we cannot, we cannot say that too much. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, that's well put. And a lot of our listeners, you know, we, we asked them if they have any questions for you. There's a lot, unfortunately, we won't have uh, a lot of time to get into them. But one of the, I think, most resounding question that a lot of people had was this idea that if they believe similar things, or maybe perhaps even the same thing you do, how do they interact with electoralism in Canada, knowing that they're frankly, just isn't representatives that reflect, at least publicly, the sort of ideals that we're talking about, and that it is so radioactive. You know, do you have any advice for our listeners, just regular Canadians that believe the very non-controversial thing that socialism is what will save us? Any recommendation for them to operate here in Canada politically? Yeah, you know, I'm grappling with this question myself every day. I mean, um, First of all, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I. I think it's probably fair to say I'm more skeptical now about electoral politics than I've ever been, and I don't know whether, uh, you know, I, I. It was so disheartening to see how Jeremy Corbyn was crushed, mm -hmm. uh, and is now, uh, you know, within the mainstream discourse in the United Kingdom, a marginal figure, even though he built the United Kingdom Labour Party to be the largest political party in Europe. Yeah, you yeah. know. Um, you know, uh, I get, you know, we could go on and on with examples of this. Uh, you know, the, the, the squad in the United States, I was a cheerleader for the squad 
you know, back when Bernie Sanders ran in 2016. I think they've sold out. Mm. Yeah, I think they've completely sold out. I mean, I, so I don't, I, I, my answer to your question is the, you know, we may not, we may not be well advised to be investing our time and energy in electoral politics. It may be that we're at a stage and that the system is so corrupt that the only way to achieve what we need to achieve for the well-being of our children, future generations, is massive, relentless, tireless civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to, you know, discourage people from voting. I don't want to discourage people from becoming politically engaged. But if you're not combining your political engagement with civil disobedience, I think the sad reality is you're likely going to accomplish nothing. Mm -hmm. I think those at a bare minimum, if we're going to engage at all in electoral politics, it must go hand in hand with disruption, constant disruption. You know, Noam Chomsky talked about how these battles are not won in days, weeks, but years. And you have to hit them in the wallet. You have to make the elites hurt economically in order for them to take notice. Uh, you know, there, I, I remember once I attended a speech by uh, uh, by uh, Chris Hedges at the United Church on Bloor Street in Toronto. This was about eight or nine years ago. And he told this story, which I think he got out of the autobiography of Henry Kissinger, uh, where he and Nixon were sitting in the White House, uh, you know, when these gigantic and extremely unruly protests over the Vietnam War were taking place in Washington. And according to Kissinger, you know, Nixon looked out on the lawn, the Washington Mall, and he locked, he saw all these irate people, and he looked at Henry and he said, Henry, they're coming to get us. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, as it turns out, and this is a point that Hedges made, I think, entirely fairly, in many ways, Nixon was the most progressive president uh, that the United States has had since his presidency. The mm-hmm. policies that he enacted from the, the perspective of the environment in particular uh, but uh, workers' rights, civil rights, uh, were more progressive than any of those of his prede- his successors, not his predecessors, but his successors. And I think that that he was forced. He was actually intimidated into at least allowing these uh, legislative acts to come forward and be adopted, and not at least and not standing in the way by uh, the threat of massive civil disobedience. Yeah, so you know, I think I think ultimately the lesson of the Nixon administration and the legislation, the progressive legislation that was passed, you know, in no small part due to the heroic efforts of Ralph Nader, I should add, uh, during the Nixon administration, <laughs> shows what you can, how you can force the hand of even reactionary right wing uh, political figures uh, to at least acquiesce in progressive initiatives and progressive policy. If it's combined with massive civil disobedience, uh, if you're not if you're not ultimately going to strike the fear of God into them, they're not going to serve the public interest. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Dimitri, for taking the time to uh, chat with us and you know, discuss the goings on of the Green Party, what we need to do, kind of moving forward. I, I do think that idea that 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 send off, if you will, of you know that the time for activism is now is such an essential one. Just in this one moment, how do you relate the need for more humanistic, progressive activism and socialist activism versus what we've seen in Canada and the United States and around the world of far right, straight up fascist activism and the successes that that movement is happening? You know, how do you see 
uh, you know, the actual progressive needed socialist alternative to that actually making ground when it's seemingly at least that the fascist activists are doing in many ways what perhaps more progressive activists should be doing. Well, I, look, I'm going to offer you a response which uh, may be controversial to a number of people on the left, and I'll answer your question by telling you a story about the Freedom Convoy. Um, you know, I uh, my daughter lives in Ottawa. She goes to university in Ottawa, and uh, she lives, or at the time she was living, on a street which was invaded by the truckers' convoy for weeks, uh, and she had to endure that every day the noise the disruption the pollution and you know she frequently complained she's adamantly opposed to the truckers convoy was very upset with the whole experience and was so happy to see it come to an end um but i went there uh myself on the final two days of the convoy uh to observe what was actually happening on the ground and i went out uh it was bitterly cold and I stood right at the front line of the truckers' convoy uh, as a phalanx of police was moving up uh, Rideau Street and, you know, right in front of the parliament and gradually pushing the convoy, the protesters, uh, away from Parliament Hill and arresting anybody who refused to move. And I was standing right there. I was actually risking arrest because I didn't have a press jacket on. Mm. Uh, and I, they could have easily mistaken me for somebody who was a protester, but I was there as an observer. I talked to people. Uh, I listened very carefully to what people were saying. I walked up and down the street looking at, there were a lot of placards. There were trucks where they had written in hand all over the trucks, you know, like hundreds of messages. And I spent the time in the bitter cold to read them. And the, the set, I mean, I, I, I will say I came away with two strong impressions. One was those people were definitely situated to the right of me politically, uh, at least the majority of them, I would mm -hmm. say. But some of the complaints that I was hearing from them were complaints that I thought, um, you know, deserve to be heard and that they deserve to be engaged with. And uh, I think part of the problem that we're having on the left uh, with achieving the kind of mobilization success that we're seeing on the right, and I think it's fair to say they've been much better certainly this is true in the United States, at mobilizing their forces and uh, pursuing their agenda than we have been in recent years, is that we are perhaps a little too reluctant to engage in conversations with people who on some issues disagree with us, perhaps even you know, profoundly, strongly, adamantly, irrationally disagree with us, but who actually have some common ground with us if we actually if we take the opportunity to explore the common ground and not not dismiss them all as people who are unworthy of our dialogue and our consideration. So I think that that's not the only way uh, we need to get out of the current, you know, impasse that the left find itself finds itself in in the West. Uh, but I think that that is an important means of, of of building our base. We have to be willing to talk to people, ordinary Canadians, who may be politically inclined towards the right. But what's motivating them in many cases to do that are concerns that are shared to yeah. some degree with people on the left. Yeah, no, I think just uh, we talked about this so much, eh, Krista, during the, the convoy yeah. protest. The the One of the greater tragedies, of course, the threat of firebombing is the first greatest tragedy and the thing that needs to be concerned. But the just the fact that so many of these concerns are 
because of the oppression of capital. But yet there's such there's a great number of Canadians and Americans and people on this planet right now that believe the, re, the their salvation will be through the most extreme mechanisms of capital to save them. And that was, at least for me, absolutely depressing to see, like you said, a lot of what was on those placards, like, yeah, absolutely. You, you don't have the means to have any upward mobility. It is impossible to really live and be sick in, in Canada right now. Like, yeah, it's understood, but the, the organizations that are grabbing you up are perhaps the most entrenched within capital. So you're, you're lost. How are you going to find that person? Right. So I guess that's my thought with that. Uh, Christo, any, any final words before we uh, wrap it up here? No, I think this was just a fantastic discussion and uh, we'd always love to have Dimitri back whenever, whenever he wants to come back. It's happy to do that. You guys are doing great work. I hear nothing but uh, wonderful things about your program. And uh, anytime you want to continue the discussion, please let me know. Absolutely. Thank you again. And again, if you want to join our little community, head to patreon.com slash left turn Canada, just a buck a month. And you can join our discord where people yell at us because we don't have the right opinions, which is always great. Something that we, we need more of. And uh, yeah, Christo, or excuse me, Dimitri, not used to two Greek names here today. Uh, (laughs) What, what is the, if I could give you the final word, you know, what, what is your hope for the green party going into the future here because i know you you have an interesting history with it but if there is one perhaps thread of optimism that you could put for this party that could make change you know what what would it be the base of the party you know there's so yeah. many incredible even today the party's base appears to have shrunk dramatically uh, after the disastrous year we had last year uh you know i think something like 35% of the members voted uh, in this leadership contest, uh, whereas somewhere close to 70% voted in 2020. But there still are a lot of amazing people in that base who, despite all of the trials and tribulations of the Green Party, remain committed to, you know, uh, an eco-socialist agenda. And uh, somehow we have to find a way uh, to ensure that the party actually represents them. Uh, I don't know what that is. Uh, I do want to say this. I want to, you know, just before we sign off, uh, point out that there are people in the eco-socialist wing of the Green Party who are talking about holding a People's Assembly next year. Uh, And we would like to bring together leftists from around the country to discuss this very issue, is what is the best way forward in electoral politics for the left? Uh, Is it a new party? Is it, you know, uh, trying to... uh, take control of an existing party, whether it be the Green Party, the NDP, and reform it dramatically. What is the way forward? And I think think the starting point is for us to have that kind of a discussion. 